This is an episode that I do like, even though it's pretty damn flawed. It's especially one of those episodes that starts to break apart more and more the more you think about it. Um, I do want to comment on a couple of things. Uh, first of all, when I was watching this episode as a kid, I didn't actually care for it all that much. Mostly because the fact that it really got kind of slow at times. And then it was all tense, but not action-y. And so I just kind of got bored of it because I was a kid. I find that funny because I actually rather enjoy the pacing of the of the episode now, you know, being slightly older than when I was when I first saw this episode. This episode was originally supposed to happen before the big goodbye. I think I already mentioned that in the big goodbye. And in fact, the enhancements mentioned in this episode were supposed to be relevant to the big goodbye. That's actually very important for something we'll be discussing at the very end of this rumination. I just wanted to mention that in brief. Now, they do acknowledge that the big goodbye has happened before this in the episode. They reference it directly, actually. But, shrug... I don't have much else to share from a behind-the-scenes perspective, other than the interesting fact that they somehow managed to get the actual same actress back when, spoilers alert, Minuet shows up in the future. I'm actually pretty impressed by that. That's, uh, that's pretty amusing. Anyways, so they come in for dock, and it's, again, I mentioned that pacing thing. They spend a long time on the docking sequence. I'm not 100% sure why so much runtime is dedicated towards the docking sequence, but... It is reasonably well done. It looks especially good on the Blu-ray. What I'm really weirded out by is the fact that after it, Picard says, Well done, all. Now, I get what he's saying there. At least I assume what he's saying is he's actually complimenting them on their performance for the last however many weeks it's been at this point. You know, 12, 13 weeks, whatever we're up to at this point. So, you know, well done as members of the crew of the Enterprise. But... In the moment, it sounds like he's saying, Well done all for docking, even though, like, nobody was really involved. He even praises Riker in specific. Uh, okay. Now, I do have to mention... Oh, excuse me. Ah. Sorry, the Binar speech, uh, both of them, are kind of interesting to me. First of all, the... the we've actually, we actually know what binary sounds like in real life, or at least some of us do if you're slightly older. Have you ever heard the modem screech noise? Uh, what do you think that is? That is literally the sound of data being transmitted very quickly. I mentioned that because... Oh, faxes do the same thing as well, actually. I mentioned that because the way they talk is so relatively slow that it sounds like they're not conveying a particularly large amount of information, especially if they're actually speaking in binary language, which... I don't know if that's true or not, but I just thought I'd comment on it. I'm not really complaining, per se. It's just interesting that they decided to do it in this manner rather than any other manner that they could have done. Uh, it, it certainly sounds like generic computer language. It's just, again, one of those things that when you think about kind of doesn't quite add up. The other side of the binary speech isn't nearly as well done overall in terms of presentation. The thing where they talk back and forth, kind of like this, it's not the tonality that, that's bothersome. It's the, the tempo. It feels like they didn't practice it at all, so they don't actually know their cues as well as they should. And so sometimes they just kind of step over each other's words, and sometimes there's this unnatural pause in between Binar 1 saying something and Binar 2 saying something. 
I do have a quick question here. I believe Frakes brought this up as well. Why have the binars never come up ever again? Oh, that's not true. They're mentioned once in Enterprise, but other than that, they're never brought up again in all of Star Trek. Why is that? They're kind of an interesting race. And I mean, we see plenty of other races that started off as basically nothings or one-off races that came back. Hell, the Trill are a good example of that. Or the Borg, if you want a really big one. Why not the Binars? Anyways, just food for thought. So, the Binars come on board and we see the first two Binars who are 1-0 and 0-1. <laughs> I get what you're going for here, but again... The only way that makes sense if, is if that is a nickname that has been given to them specifically for interacting with the Starfleet crew members. Because there's no way that an entire race of people manages to make names out of themselves consisting of zero and one that are two digits long. Um, because, let's see, we've got zero, zero, one, one, zero, one, and one, zero. Is it. I like to think that it is literally a nickname they gave to him. Oh, yes, we were definitely binary. And their actual name is Susan or something like that, you know. I know, I know, no gender, but, you know. So, they are all played by females. And Riker consistently refers to them as gentlemen, so whatever. Now, the Binars act so suspicious, it's actually kind of silly. It, it, I mean, I I feel like I'm watching one of those old cartoons. I've actually talked about this. I've actually talked about this effect before. It actually bothers me, and it's, it's what I consider a bad form of writing. When a character or a person or a group or whatever shows up, and they're acting obviously different or are obviously lying or are obviously plotting something, and everyone just kind of goes, okay, whatever, and lets it go. Happens a lot in kids' shows, I've noticed, since I've been watching a lot more the last few years. Uh, with my niece. And so the binars are like, we're super suspicious. Super suspicious. Super suspicious. And everyone's just like, yeah, whatever. And Riker just kind of says, I don't know if I believe them, but I'm not going to follow through up on this in any way, shape, or form. And he completely abandons it when he goes down to the holodeck. So it's like, come on, dude. <laughs> You're better than this. Whatever. Also, weird thing here. This is a 5 minute, 22 second teaser. One of the longest teasers thus far. I've been kind of keeping track of that as we go. And again, early T TNG had really, really long teasers. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing. But the teaser as is is kind of interesting because it's the docking sequence. It's the crew kind of interacting with each other, establishing that they're doing these upgrades. And the Binars are the bad guys. And all of that is established in the teaser. And then, of course, we have, let's be honest, a fairly typical Star Trek twist in the fact that the Binars are not the bad guys. Spoiler alert. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. I find... You know, we'll get to that. We'll get there. So, Riker goes through his tour through the ship. I kind of like this section, actually. It's a part where the episode really hits the brakes and slows down, but not in a jerky kind of a way. In sort of a smooth, sauntering kind of meander kind of a tone, and the pace just plummets for, like, the entire next two acts, if you're assuming a five-act structure, uh, for, for the episode. I like it because it actually, at first I thought it was out of character for Riker, but when I really started to think about it, I realized it isn't. Riker is a workaholic. He is someone who is a worrywart, you know, fret, 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 and he is someone who is most comfortable when he is doing his job. His career has been his focus and will indeed be his entire... Like, you could summarize Riker's character arc from season one to three as 
his career. And, well, we'll talk about Riker's character arc after season three, or excuse me, after season four, I should say, when we get there, but eh, moving on. So his fixation on this and his desire to walk around as he's interacting, you know, he goes to engineering and he goes to Data and Jordy and he goes to the med bay and he's just, he's trying to find something to do. And there's even that little bit where he's like, I don't like organizing my time off. Kind of feels very Riker to me. Now, the reason I initially thought that was off was because in later episodes, he's perfectly okay with relaxing. But that's not really contradictory, because most of the time when he's relaxing, he just kind of happens. It's like, all right, time off, and he goes off, and he either hits the holodeck, or he spends some time on Ryza, or he spends some more time on Ryza. God almighty, Riker. I, I know that there are other things in the world than women. I, I swear, I promise, there's something else. <laughs> no shaming here, it's just, jeez Louise, dude. Uh, he reminds me of Zidane more than anything else. Anyways... So, he goes down there, and they talk about the enhancement of the holodeck. Now, I'm going to talk more about the holodeck in a second, okay? This is my second of, I think, three major episodes, or four, excuse me, major episodes in which I really need to discuss the holodeck on TNG. We've already discussed it in The Big Goodbye. We'll be bringing it up here, uh, and two more times. I'm, I'm not going to go into it, it doesn't matter. Point being... I've kind of planned this out because I know this series. But what we need to discuss right now is how pathetic Riker is. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, okay? Like, all right, I've kind of killed the romantic side of myself like 10 years ago. That's pretty normal. We all get that. But uh, And I know I'm kind of a prude, and, and everyone kind of knows that romance must die. You know, I've got that kind of uh, reputation. And I can appreciate an attractive-looking member of whatever gender I happen to be interested in, my, female in my case. I can appreciate the idea of seeing someone that is physically, excuse me, visually attractive. I, I, I get that. But the way Riker acts when he's setting up the program is almost face-palmingly bad. <laughs> like, like in a hilarious kind of a way, at least to me. As he's like, oh, this, this is what you call enhancements. This is perfect. He hasn't talked to her yet. Doesn't know where the sound of her voice. Yeah, like this for all he knows. I mean, she, he hasn't done any of that. <laughs> he hasn't talked to her, hasn't interacted with her in any way, shape, or form. Has no idea what kind of personality or programming or anything that she has. She's literally just sitting there, holding the glass, staring at him. Pure visual. Might as well be looking at a picture at that point. And he acts like he's just being knocked off his feet. Like, oh my God, this is. The most beautiful thing ever. Also, he has a line which was so funny I had to share it in my Discord. It was uh, something along the lines of, uh, not bad, she good, looks good, but uh, blondes and jazz just don't mix. Now, I get it. Riker is obviously attracted to brunettes uh, because Troy. I mean, okay, yeah, I get that. But um, that's an interesting way to phrase that. <laughs> so then they he's totally wowed by this. And then... They start talking, and this is where that work uh, subplot, you know, the character arc of Riker kind of comes in a little bit. You know, work is what I am. Work is what I do. Work is what consumes me. And uh, and it's a nice little bit, and then it immediately throws me, because the very next thing that happens is he sa he compliments her on how well she dances. I didn't count the exact time, but it's roughly three seconds after they start sashaying back and forth a little bit that he says, you dance very well. How would you know, Riker? 
And what's weird is, given the episode's overall pacing, why not just have the time to watch? They literally spent about a solid minute of Riker, Jonathan Frakes, just playing the trombone for a bit. You could spend a few seconds of having them actually dance before he starts complimenting her. There's a nice little tidbit where Riker says how fortunate he is. Now... Season 1 hasn't really played this out. I've actually brought this up before. And this is something that's more of an idea from later TNG. Um, but I do... There's still this implication, this idea that regardless of the Roddenberry ideals, regardless of the perfection of humanity, or whatever you want to call that, that being a member of Starfleet is a good thing. It's something to be aspired towards. I've commented myself that I think that I, I would be interested if I lived in the Star Trek universe and being part of Starfleet and being part of that organization and that future and that access because of just general ambition and desire to explore and expand and do, right? I've, ta- I've talked about this over on Voyager, even, and how Voyager itself was practically a floating paradise going through the Delta Quadrant as a consequence of, of its nature. So, I kind of like how in-universe Riker acknowledges, this is actually the second time Gosh and Tasha did this too, uh, Riker acknowledges how fortunate he is to be on this ship, on, with this crew, on this mission. Because I kind of agree, and again, this is basically the beginning of Riker's character, right here, this episode. This is when this really gets started. Now, uh, so, I'm going to talk about two more things really quick, then I'm going to discuss the holodeck, okay? So, Picard comes in, I wrote down each example he listed, and it's actually funny, because this is when they acknowledge each usage of the holodeck prior to now in the entire series. We've got, we've used it for woodlands, that was getting countered at Firepoint, we've used it for ski slopes, that was, oh gosh, I don't remember which one, that, that was the... The virus one, where where Wesley comes off the ski and the, the super doom virus that they can't fix. I can't remember which episode that was. Anyways, that's that one. Um, now I'm going to get 50 comments telling me which episode it was. It always happens. Uh, then he mentions the... Uh, we've, we've created figures to fight. That was Code of Honor. And then he mentions we have uh, created people to interact with. And that's the big goodbye. But I've... And then he says, I've never seen something like you. And he... Picard and Riker are both super impressed with Minuet, and I don't understand why. Now, it is worth noting that if this was the first holodeck episode, the real first holodeck episode, I could understand that. Because then, prior to now, we would have had Woodlands, Ski, and an opponent that doesn't talk in an empty room, right? So, someone who has a dynamic AI that interacts with you, yeah, that'd be pretty impressive. But we've seen the big goodbye. They even talked about, like, one of the things they kept doing in the big goodbye, one of the things I praised the big goodbye for was how much they treated it like the wondrous thing that it was. About how awesome it was to interact with this as this relatively new thing. Because, again, remember, the holodeck is actually pretty recent tech. The one on the Enterprise is one of the first, well, not one of the first, but, you know, one of the first batch of holodecks that's been put out there. So this is new. This is probably the first time these people have ever really done anything on the holodeck, at least extensively. And yet they're all super impressed with Minuet. And the only thing they actually say uh, specifically as with regards to why Minuet is so impressive is because Minuet is capable of reading their body language and, and their facial patterns and all of the non-vocal signals that human beings give off that I myself have actually spent a lifetime trying to learn. 
in order to try and figure out what she should say and how with regards to interacting with them. Now that is impressive, but we've already seen that. So why are they so impressed with it now? Why is Minuet so different, so amazing, so real? They keep saying that. She's so real. Oh, and that brings me to my next point. The end of the episode, she's gone. Why? Well, I bet you already know the answer I'm going to give to that, because the only logical answer is that Minuet was always a binar, or something specifically part of the binar system. I don't mean the system, planetary system, I mean the, the, the computer system of the binars. Something that was specifically crafted, probably a literal AI, that helps to keep their, their infrastructure and their main computer running. Thus, a true AI that they can interact with. Now, I've actually already given my arguments for why I think that the holodeck basically is an AI, not a VI, an AI. An AI with restrictions, but an AI nonetheless. An adaptive and intelligent self, partially self-aware, fully dynamic uh, interactive intelligence, right? That is, of course, just my opinion, and some people have disagreed with me on that. That's fine. You know, we, we can discuss this back and forth because it's not definitive. But I bring this up because, again, and I hate to keep going back to this, the big goodbye has already happened. We've already seen what the existing AI of the holodeck can do. We already saw it in that episode. It was pretty much the main focus of that episode, right? So why is Minuet so special? Why is she always con constantly referred to as being real? Now, I'll, I do know the answer to this question. It's because this episode was supposed to come before the big goodbye, and so they already wrote it and they didn't bother changing it. That's why. But I suppose we'll talk about the holodeck now for realsies, because there's a line which Riker says, and I wrote it down right here, it says, How far could this relationship go? Now, I have actually already brought up this very topic over on Voyager, at least three times that I'm aware of. Let me go ahead and say something that's probably going to make me a little bit unpopular, but it's never stopped me before. I always try to be honest on my show, uh, and in real life for that matter. And that is... I don't see anything wrong with having a holographic boyfriend-girlfriend kind of thing. I don't. I think that as long as you do it in moderation, with well-reasoned logic and understanding of the situation, there's nothing wrong with that. If you want some kind of companionship, if you want someone to go on a date with, if you want someone to have sex with, if you want someone to make out with, if you want someone to go bowling with, if you want someone to play video games with, I don't see anything wrong with that. Now, is it possible to take that too far? Absolutely. I think if there's one thing that I am known for, it's my general belief in moderation in all things. I do believe that if you get to the point where you're like proclaiming your love and trying to marry or long-term have a relationship with a holographic character, and I do mean a holographic character, not a true holographic AI like, say, the Doctor, then yeah, we officially have a problem at that point. But you have to reach that point first. You have to go too far to do that, and that's a matter of lack of self-control and lack of proper understanding or moderation of the circumstances. That's just my opinion. I don't think there's any need to shame someone for that any more than there's a need to shame someone for engaging in whatever other private things that they do within the privacy of their own home for their own private reasons, as long as they don't go too far with it. My opinion. So... The idea that Riker wants to have a girlfriend on the holodeck, and, is pretty much my reaction to that. 
This topic gets a lot more tricky later, and I'm actually not going to discuss the ways in which this topic can go bad or get a little bit more debatable and where things get more gray, because that's not brought up in this episode. That's actually brought up in a later episode, and we will discuss that when we get there, as I promised. But what I want to bring up right now is the word relationship. Because as presented, what Riker is implying is the idea of truly falling in love with a holographic character. And again, based on all entireties, someone who is being presented as either a temporary AI or is not an AI at all. In other words, is just a holographic character, not a true sentient, sapient being. It is also worth noting that with a character that's been left running for a certain period of time and maintaining all its its presence as a character, it's actually probably within the realm of possibility that even a base holographic character, which would be a low-level VI, might have enough experience to have droid effect take place and become a true, full-fledged, sentient, sapient AI. Uh, I would actually argue, uh, over on DS9, this will come up later, that Vic Fontaine was not truly sentient or sapient initially. It wasn't until uh, It's Only a Paper Moon that he actually developed to that point. That's just my opinion, of course, and we'll discuss that when we get there. So... You can see how this is kind of a complicated situation because now you have a, in most ways, real girlfriend who is a computer program stuck on the holodeck of one ship, no less. What happens if he moves ships? Can that tra program be transferred without any difficulties? What happens if one of the thousands of things that happen a week happen and, and destroy her programming? Do you have backups? Is it ethical to do backups? What about altering her programming? Is that ethical? Especially after the point at which droid effect has taken place. You could see how this could become a bit of an issue. And again, why I counsel the concept of moderation within this topic. Because if you're going to have a holographic boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, you need to be aware of the full consequences and situation that you are getting into. And to be perfectly blunt, I don't think Riker does. Especially since one of the first things he does after they get control back of their ship is run straight back down to the holodeck. And he's all puppy sad about the fact that she's not there. Oh, and then he mentions it'll be hard to forget her, which is funny because he doesn't. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier. So, where do we draw the line? You know? Now, the in as for the individual, that's easy. That's relatively easy to draw the line. But how do you draw the line from, a, from an abstract perspective? At what point does droid effect really take place? Remember, the entire point of droid effect is that it is a pro slow progression over a series of time. Right? Do you do regular memory wipes like they actually do in Star Wars to prevent this from happening? To prevent it from being an issue? Do you decide to just put an artificial limitation on the learning cap capabilities of the program? so that the character basically retains no memory of previous actions, which is basically the same as a regular memory wipe. Do you just switch characters every time to prevent this from ever being a problem? You can see how this could become a murky issue. And of course, at that point, the question can then get even murkier and even grayer of if they are truly capable of having droid effect happen, which I remind you is still a speculation at this point. But if they are capable of having droid effect happen with regular, regularly, repeatedly interacted with AI programs on the holodeck, then should they ever be activated with that level of capacity? 
because at that point, any time you interact with them and don't carry forward with that, you are effectively terminating the capacity for life within a being. And we know how sticky of an issue that is here in real life. So, you can see how this can become a very vast, myriad, murky kind of a topic. Now, let me go ahead and say that I don't think any of this was intended by the creators when they made the holodeck. I guarantee you what the creators who made the holodeck was. It was to be the holodeck. It was supposed to be the consequence-free, morality-free, ethically-free fun zone. It was supposed to be the, the end-all result of the video game concept. Interactive media of entertainment. That's it. I mean, we don't worry about our video games becoming sentient. Of course not. They're not sufficiently advanced. And therein lies the problem. Anyways, I don't have much else to say about that topic, as ever. Love to hear your guys' thoughts on the matter. And we will be bringing this topic up yet again when we go to the next step as we learn even more about this when a certain Reginald Barkley joins the show. Moving on. So, uh, I just want to give huge props to Ron Jones. I know I say that a lot, and I'll probably be saying that again in the future, but there's a series of scenes where Data and Geordi are figuring out the, the disaster, and they've got four minutes and 15 seconds, or whatever it is, to evacuate this ship. And then there's the evacuation that happens, and then there's a sequence of scenes when Riker and Picard find out what's going on, leave the holodeck, and they're like, okay, we got to deal with this. For all of these scenes... They're not super interesting, but they're very well directed. There's a lot of good camera movement and a lot of good motion to keep people in the right place. And the music helps tremendously. I actually found myself engaged more than I should be for what is effectively multiple scenes of people walking with no dialogue happening. And I like that. So props to the, props to the creators overall. Now... <laughs> There's a bit of logical disconnect here where Data is like, please, Data says flat out, please locate Captain Picard and Commander Riker. And that's the question he asks. The computer's response is, no one is left on the Enterprise. That should have already tipped one of them off, in my opinion. And that should have been some kind of insight into something's off. But instead they just beam off and they're like, all right, whatever. It is then not within... It's funny because it takes only seconds of them being on the Starbase to realize that Picard and Riker are still on the Enterprise. So it's not like they're stupid. You know, we can't have the stupid character excuse for this episode. In fact, Data and Geordi are pretty on top of it for the entire episode. With that exception, and the exception of when they watch the Enterprise leave. Because no one does anything to prevent the Enterprise from leaving at all. I just feel like pointing out that back in the original series, or actually more accurately in the movies, uh, they had more capacity to and took more action to prevent the Enterprise from being stolen in Star Trek III, uh, The Search for Spock, than these guys do when they literally just stand there. And, and there's several scenes where the cu camera cuts to the people, then it cuts to the Enterprise, then it cuts to the people, then it cuts to the Enterprise, and, cuts, and they're all just standing there watching. You can do things, guys. That reminds me. They have transporters on the Starbase. That's not a speculation. They flat out say that in the episode. Why weren't they using those transporters to help mass evacuate the Enterprise? We know they can mass evacuate. We know they can mass transport. That's a thing. Well, creatively speaking, that I don't think that's actually come up in the series to date. Later on, mass you know, rapid-fire transport will be something that's brought up in TNG and actually in the movies in, uh, as, as well, in Star Trek Generations, which technically happened before this, but you get my point. So it's not like that's not within the capacity in-universe, but 
whatever. So it gets away. You know, Minuet is like, don't leave, don't leave. So, of course, they figure it out immediately. Um, I'm also amused that given how much of the computer isn't working and how they talk about how the computer is almost completely full with the Binar program, that they're still allowed to do the self-destruct. I remind you that the self-destruct that they're doing is something they're doing through the computer. You know, that interacting mostly through voice interface with a little bit of the palm as well in order to activate or deactivate the self-destruct. Now, I've actually made fun in the past over on Voyager about the manual self-destruct, which is when you take a phaser down to the engine room and just keep firing until it goes up. But, you know, I get that they didn't want to do that in this case. This was more of a in-case-we-don't-retake-the-bridge kind of a situation. Understandable. But again, why is that working when the turbo lifts aren't working? Oh, but the transporters are. Just kind of weird, actually. And in fact, even weirder when you consider the fact that the binars actively need them to be active. Actively need them. My word structure. They need them to be functional in order to be able to restore their, their main computer on binar and f fix what's going on with the Enterprise. They require that. They actually needed two people to be on the crew, and some nitpickers have pointed out the fact that they originally only planned for Riker and that Picard was a happy accident, and I kind of agree that it's something they probably should have planned for a little bit, but whatever, point, because they needed two people, remember, because the whole binar thing, but why would they restrict their access to the turbolifts? For that matter, why didn't they... I mean, there's, there's a dozen different ways they could have solved this so-called mystery so much easier, in my opinion. Now, yes, they did leave Minuet, who somehow is still running, even despite the fact that the computer is almost totally filled up with the thing. Let's not even go into that. But that's their message? Couldn't have pulled out a pad and said, all right, so here's what's going on. And that brings me to my biggest flaw of this episode. Because from that point on, there's not really much to say about the episode. You know, they, they fix everything. The autostruct gets turned off. Uh... Minuet is different. Again, why? And then there's just a bunch of coda and, and fallout, and we're going to have a trial because you guys stole a starship. Blah, 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 blah. Why didn't they ask? That is, without question, the biggest flaw of this episode for me. This is a very typical Star Trek, especially the original series episode, where we have someone who is presented to be the bad guy and is revealed to actually not be evil. That's a very classic Star Trek plot. Now, that's not my flaw. Okay, I want to make that clear. I have nothing wrong with that kind of plot. In fact, I kind of like that kind of plot, especially when it's done well. But it's a Doctor Who does the same kind of thing now that I think about it. But in this case, it feels more artificial than usual. Because they have this supernova thing, right? That they know is coming. They had to have known way in advance that it's coming. Now, yes, I know they said it happened earlier than expected, but it's implied that's a matter of weeks, not, I don't know, years. You, you know that kind of thing's coming. You know you're going to have computer problems. You're going to know you're going to need this thing. Now, the stated reason in the episode, and I know some of you are jumping to defend this episode, so let me just go ahead and get out there. The stated reason in the episode is, you might have said no, which is dumb. I'm just going to say that as bluntly as possible. First of all, the idea that the Federation of this era would say no to that kind of request, keeping in mind the Binars are actually members of the Federation, not a prime directive influenced race. So, yeah, they would have been like, yeah, sure, we got your back. Duh. 
<laughs> right? I mean, duh. But even ignoring that, even if you were somehow willing to accept that the Federation of this era is willing to say, piss off, we want you to go kill yourselves in genocide, and blah. we're in favor of genocide because we're horribly evil. Even if you're willing to accept that, the the problem with the whole binar thing is the writer seems to think that binar is an and or as opposed to a and situation it would have been extremely easy for them to interact and plan with this to have the the ability to take the ship and then try it just in case things failed it's called a backup plan okay so first you try this okay they said no because we are evil. And then you go ahead and enact the actual kidnap a ship plan. And then you just take the consequences. Remember, they were totally free, willing to take whatever consequences freely that happened as a result of this. So why not try asking first? Second of all, why now? Like they mentioned how rushed they are. And part of the problem there is because the Enterprise was delayed. Now, quick aside, just really quick. I wanted to talk about this earlier, and I forgot. Forgive me. This is a good example of what I mean by setting continuity and how TNG has a, a fairly strong setting continuity and basically no string continuity. The idea that the events of previous episodes have some impact on future episodes in, in sort of vague or background ways. In other words, they were expecting the Enterprise a week ago, but the events of Angel 1 happened. So they were delayed. They mentioned this three times in the episode. And as a consequence of the delay, they're, they're already behind schedule on their next mission, which is why the, the repairs and the retrofit has to happen very quickly. It's a nice example of setting continuity and kind of what I was talking about that. Anyways, so the point being, they're in a big rush and they need it. Why do they need the Enterprise? Why the Enterprise specifically? I could see the argument that they need a galaxy class because they need some kind of ship with the massive kind of main computer that can handle this kind of thing. And it has to be mobile, so it can't be, you know, a starbase or whatever. But the Enterprise is not the only galaxy class out there. In fact, there are several, uh, as we will find out throughout the rest of the season when there are a minimum of two more that we will interact with, including the galaxy herself. So why not go after one of those? Are they all missing? I mean, they never mentioned that. So it, the obvious defense would be, well, those ships are missing or busy or have already had their retrofit or whatever. But that again brings me back to my earlier point. You can't tell me that they had weeks warning to, to get this plan into effect. I mean, God's sakes, we in real life have more ability to predict supernovae than these people apparently do in the future, in a space travel era with a galactic community. So you can't tell me they didn't have some kind of warning. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if other races found out about this supernova situation. I mean, you're telling me that Starfleet, especially this era, Starfleet, the one who loves studying comets for fun, isn't going to be able to know about this supernova way in advance and be able to be like, oh my god, we need to help those people out, or we need to let them die. Or The point being, they, they had time. Everything's all rushed, and they all have to do this because they don't have time. Why? Whatever. That complaint aside, I did enjoy this episode. It, it is nice to enjoy a season one episode again. I hope you have enjoyed me discussing this season one episode, and I will be seeing you guys next time. <laughs>